a little bit about uh, Buddhism and some of the other religions there. She told me that in prayer, she liked to use the word om. It gave her calm and peace. And that she also liked to pray in the name of Shiva. For me, alarm bells were ringing. This was somebody who was exploring leadership in God's church. And yet in her prayer life was holding together strands of other faith. In doing this, she was compromising the uniqueness of Christ. Helen did love Jesus, but Helen did lack some insight. Gently, I explained to her that there is much that we can learn from other faiths. After all, God has been revealed in the whole of creation. There are many people who don't know Jesus and yet show me things about God. We see God's beauty in a sunset. We see God's might and power in a great big mountain. But as Christians, we have special, unique revelation of God through Jesus Christ. And because we have this, nothing else compares to it. Jesus came to show us God. Jesus came and died on a cross and rose again so that we can have access into the throne room of God. That we can be totally sure that we are utterly forgiven of our sins. If you're a Christian today, you don't need to live in any guilt. You are totally free. You're a son and daughter of the king. You can be totally sure of where you're going to when you die. You don't need to doubt it. It's not going to be weighed on the scales. If you're in Jesus Christ, you're totally going to heaven. You can rejoice. You can live life in freedom. There is nothing, no other faith, no other strand of belief that compares to what we have in Jesus Christ. And so I told Helen that she was going to need to make a decision And that decision is one that she needed to make on her own. For we do not force decisions upon other people. We have to make them on our own before God. Helen went away and prayed and spent some time thinking. She came and talked to me again. She decided to take her necklace off. We chatted a little bit more and we chatted more about prayer and all that the Holy Spirit can give us in our prayer lives to help us pray. We prayed for Helen to receive the gift of tongues, to replace her use of other things. Helen received the gift of tongues, and Jesus was kept on his throne in her life. You see, Jesus is very gracious, and so loving, and so kind. Because he is loving and kind, he will not share his throne with any other power. He isn't going to share it with Buddha. He isn't going to share it with our love for money. He isn't going to share his throne with anything 
else other than himself. Why? Because only he can bring fullness of life. Today we're finishing um, the book of Ezra. It's a tough book. We're going to come back to Helen again at the end. It's a tough, tough book. And it has a like, ridiculously unsatisfactory ending. If it was a novel on its own, I don't think it would be getting rave reviews. After all, it ends, verse chapter, um, chapter 10, verse 34, 44, ends like this. All these had married foreign women. Some of them had had children by these wives. End. It is a rubbish ending. I think it's like an E grade in English for a novel. It's just rubbish. Surely, Ezra, a better ending would be, we made it to the promised land. We gathered together and with one voice we praised God. We were filled with the joy that only comes from being in God's presence. Amen. Hallelujah. Surely, Ezra, that would be a better ending than a list of names. These were the men that married foreign wives and had children by them the end. Anyway, we'll talk about it in heaven. But what we need to do today is work out two things. We need to work out what on earth is Ezra saying to us through this very tricky passage. And actually, what is Ezra saying to us? What is the whole book of Ezra saying to us by ending in such a flat way? So these are the two things we're just going to explore together briefly now. The passage is a deeply uncomfortable read. Um, Between chapters 8 and 9, chronologically, the law of God would have been read out to the people that had gathered back in the promised land. Um, They have had a response to this law. And chapters 9 and 10 explain this. Um, The leaders brought to Ezra's attention in these chapters the fact that God's people who were living in the land, the few that were there when they arrived, and others as they were arriving, had married people in the neighboring area. The people they'd married came from cultures that had detestable practices. We're told in verse 2 of chapter 9 that it had been the leaders who'd led the people into their unfaithfulness. Ezra is in shock. He's upset. He tears his tunic and he sits down utterly appalled. Those that trembled at the word of God come together and gather around Ezra. Ezra falls to his knees and prays and the crowd weeps at their sins. Then a dude called Shechaniah comes to Ezra and basically says, we've been unfaithful, but there's hope. Let us send away these foreign women and their children. Ezra arises and in chapter 10, he puts all Israel under oath to do just that. Ezra then continues to mourn and fast. And we hear of uh, one, well, two people, Jonathan and somebody else saying that we're not sure about this idea. But everyone else agrees to it, and so it's done. Some time is taken over the doing of it. They pray and they prepare, but the wives and the children are sent away. Who here thinks that that sounds awful? I think to our ears that should sound awful. Is God against interracial marriage? Is God suddenly okay about divorce? I thought he wasn't a total fan of it. And what about those poor women and children? It's not their fault. Who's going to provide for them? So we need to do a little bit of hard work thinking about the context and looking at some of the particulars of the passage. It was God's people who had ultimately got messed up 
They'd got themselves tangled up in the detestable practices of the nations. They had chosen to bow instead to the one God, to other gods. In doing so, this had left God's hand lift from them and had sent them off into exile. This very thing that had led them into exile in the first place was now occurring again right at the start of them trying to re-establish their nation and purity with God. It was an awful situation that they were in. Absolutely awful. Who's, again, maybe don't, don't have to raise your hands, but I'll raise mine. Who's sinned and known that it's caused mess? They have sinned, and whatever they do at this point, it's going to cause mess. If they stay in relationship with these women, they are going to be led down the same path of going into their practices and turning away from the holy true God. Because they've sinned, they have the choice to turn their back on them and send them away. Neither option is great. And when we sin, often that's true. It leaves a mess. I don't think that God was like, yay, there's one great option here that I want you to do. Rather, he was showing them sin causes a mess. Now, let's just be a little bit clear about what the detestable practices were. Um, just checking who's in the room. So um, I can't go into too much detail, but think like um, decapitating children and then worshipping the fact that you've done that. Think about the worst sort of sexual crimes and using that as a form of worship. Okay, those are the type of detestable practices we're talking about. We're talking about pretty horrific practices and God's people were being led into them. And God isn't going to share his throne of worship with anything else. And definitely, certainly never evil practices. So it was difficult. And we need to note two things. God is not anti-interracial marriages. We know that from scripture. Moses, the great man of God, married a woman of another race. Do you remember when we were studying the book of Ruth and Boaz not that long ago, right? Two people of different races married and they pleased God so much. God was like, I love these guys so much. I'm going to let them be the great, 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 great grandparents of Jesus. God is not against interracial marriages. In fact, I think God rather likes them. I think they express a lot of beauty. So this passage is not about that. This passage is all to do with the practices of those we choose to live alongside. It's a different thing. All along, it's been about who are people going to enthrone in their hearts. And that's tricky. And just a quick word about divorce too. It's a tragedy in a loving marriage when divorce occurs. And yes, it's never God's best for us when that's the case. 
Sometimes it happens and sometimes it needs to happen for obvious reasons. And God is gracious and kind. And we've spoken on divorce and you might want to go and look back at some of the previous sermons if you want to look a little bit more about what we've said about that in church. But again, do you know what? This passage isn't actually about divorce either. It's not about interracial marriages and it's not about divorce. It's about protecting the uniqueness of Jesus Christ in our lives as his people. That is what is at the heart of the passage and that is what is at stake. And I don't think that Ezra found this decision very easy. He weeps and tears his tunic because he's in a terrible situation. It was an awful decision to have to make. He was led to it not because of goodness, but because of sin. The sin of the people had led them to this point where they were going to have to make this horrible decision, but they were going to have to make it because they needed to say, Jesus alone is on the throne, and we've got to protect that, and we've got to proclaim it to all these other nations that don't yet know him, and if we don't protect that, and we don't keep that secure, then his light in this world is going to be diminished. And people won't get to experience his grace and his love. It's very difficult. Of course, it wasn't going to be hunky-dory for those women. But the verse 13 in chapter 10 and verse 14 sort of show us that there were certainly provisions made for them. Doesn't make it easy, doesn't change the fact that it was a horrible situation but they took their time over it and sent them back to their families safely. Interestingly, a while back when I sat in Christchurch, Shannon Green, with the church open um, quite a lot in the week, Um, those of you at the work, I know you don't get to see it, but you guys support an amazing ministry that happens. The staff team get to kind of open the church so much in the week. It's incredible. And um, I was sat in there and a girl walked in in her 20s. She's like, I just need to talk to a priest. I'm like, all right, yep, um, I'm it, sorry. But yes, come and have a chat. And, And we sat down, we had a chat, and she just had a fast and furious year of London living, which had meant for her spending too much money, partying probably a little bit too much, lots of short-term relationships. At some point, she'd been sexually assaulted. She was suffering at this point from a degree of anxiety and tension. So I just listened to her story and she poured it all out. And I felt in my heart like saying to her, um, I think you need to just take a break from romantic relationships for a bit and just just kind of breathe. And then I felt in my heart as I listened to more of the story, there was a friendship that was clearly destructive, a friendship that was clearly leading her to ways and paths that were destructive. And I thought, she needs to break this friendship. And I kind of, I've somehow got to find a way of telling her that she's going to probably need to break this friendship. And I carried on listening and she was just pouring it all out. So I couldn't really speak. I just, just listened. And at the end of the conversation, she said, decided not to have sex for a year and I'm going to finish that relationship with this girl and I just know that God's calling me back to himself. And I had said, nothing. Because sometimes it's when we've got ourselves into the pit of deepest mess and realise that it hasn't actually brought life to us 
It hasn't actually filled us up. It hasn't actually um, filled the hole inside of us that needs filling. That we then go, oh yeah, I remember I heard something about this God. And he's come to give life in all its fullness. And I know I stand here today and I'm very blessed to have a loving husband. I know that. I'm very blessed and we're very blessed in our relationship and that is a blessing. And he's amazing. But there is nothing, nothing that compares to the love of Jesus Christ being poured into your heart. And this morning, if you don't, know that we don't always get to feel it sometimes we do and it's amazing when you do but if you don't know that can I encourage you back into God's word can I encourage you to think about who's on the throne in your life right now is it Jesus because if it is it's going to mean all kinds of things from not stealing the office uh, stationery to kind of um, to kind of following his ways it's going to mean obeying his ways for you because they're the best ways for you and they will lead to life Helen found that and discovered it she discovered that Jesus doesn't share his throne And he doesn't for a reason. The book of Ezra lands in a funny way. Because it highlights to us, I think, that we have a wrestle with life on this earth. Because there are many things that are going to compete for our devotion. It's going to be tricky at times to hold steadfast to Jesus. And it finishes in this way because it shows us that actually life is pretty messy. And that is just real, folks. We have to live with the consequences of the mess. But it finishes in this unsatisfactory way because it wants to kind of raise up in us a sense that surely this can't be the end. And of course, it's not the end because it's a book within the book. There's a Jesus. And Jesus comes and he slowly comes and very gently mops up the mess. And this Jesus who doesn't share his throne with any other power comes very low and chooses to die for you and for me. And then says this, why don't you come up onto the throne with me come on up I'm not sharing my throne with any other power or destructive force but I'm going to invite you to come up and so in Revelation chapter 3 he says to those that persevere come sit on the throne with me let's pray
Ephesians 2 says, because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our sins. It's by grace that we have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Oh God, may we know today what is so unique in having a relationship with Jesus Christ, that we get to be called your children, that we have utter assurance of our forgiveness, that we get to sit on the throne of heaven, that we get to talk to you face to face as it were, God. We can say what we want to you because of what Jesus has done for us. We have access to you. And God, if there's anything else that we put on the throne, we're so sorry. Would you help us take anything off the throne that shouldn't be on there today? God, that we might shine more brightly, that this world might know you.